Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Washington Weekly Podcast on the UBS In The Now podcast channel. Our conversation today will bring you up to speed on a range of developments within the Beltway and beyond. Joining me for the conversation, glad to welcome back Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. Shane, it's great to have you back here on the podcast. I know there's a bunch we want to catch our listeners, our clients up on within the U.S. and abroad. So looking forward to digging into this week's topics with you. Good to be back with you, Dan. I hope you're well and uh, looking forward to joining you today. So, Shane, let's begin with geopolitics, this continuing our coverage of the Russia-Ukraine war. Sadly, we did reach the one-year milestone in recent days, and since we last spoke on this, much has transpired. This includes a visit to Ukraine by President Biden, several U.S. officials. So, can you bring our listeners up to speed in terms of what the latest support commitments consist of from the West, from NATO to Ukraine? And this was interesting in recent days and weeks. We've heard about the potential role that China might be playing in support of Russia. So what can you share with us there? Yeah, uh, a lot of developments since we last spoke. Uh, You know, I think uh, most notably was that uh, the past few days uh, marked one year of uh, anniversary of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, from the outset, you know, there were there were uh, there was a belief that Russia would, you know, quickly overrun Ukraine. But we saw, you know, just a few weeks into uh, this war that, you know, Ukraine was standing strong. And here they are a year later and they've been able to kind of keep the Russian uh, army to, you know, the eastern uh, flank. And, you know, uh, the recent developments are some um, fierce fighting in, I think it's Bakhmut, um, where uh, Wagner Division fighters from Russia are making a heavy assault. And, you know, you, you knew there would be a tough spring offensive coming from Ukraine. So this is uh, uh, being pushed back by Ukraine, um, being uh, the Russians uh, having a... Um, and offensive. So, you know, I think, you know, President Biden's visit really was to demark, you know, the one year anniversary of the war, but also to reaffirm the U.S.'s um, commitment to supporting Ukraine. Now, there was a commitment for a lot of um, artillery and, you know, munitions and vehicles, uh, mine clearing equipment, etc. The one big question now kind of remains is what will happen with air support, air power? You know, um, uh, Ukraine is looking for uh, the U.S. to provide F-16s, um, and the Biden administration is not convinced yet that that is uh, the next move that they should make. So I think, you know, we're, we're still in this, uh, from the U.S. government supporting Ukraine. But, you know, you see some support from the American people waning. Um, not, not a huge dip in the support, but, you know, as, as Americans realize this is going to be a war of attrition, you know, how long can uh, they support uh, this effort? Um, you know, I think you see NATO standing strong and, you know, at the same time, NATO growing, you know, 
with uh, potential inclusion of new NATO countries. Um, so, you know, and this stiffens Russia's backbone to an extent. You know, this in their mind shows why they need to be fighting this. They believe that, you know, the West is really against them and, and a growing NATO is proof. You know, and as you mentioned, you know, they do have China on their side to some extent. And, you know, China is kind of proposing, you know, uh, some kind of peace plan. And the, the Biden administration has already kind of um, pushed that to the side and downplayed it. But you see, you know, um, Russian um, ally Belarus trying to work with China. I don't think this is really going to uh, result in some kind of peace plan. But it does show you, you know, um, you know, some some actors lining up on the sides of Russia and some on the side of Ukraine. So, you know, I, I think this is um, at a point where it's really a, becoming a war of attrition and it, it could last, you know, we used to say for weeks or months and now we're talking years. Well, this, of course, continues to be a very tragic and seemingly increasingly complicated story to follow. So, Shane, thank you for bringing our listeners up to speed. And we will keep our eyes on this very closely, as you pointed out, in the weeks to come. Maybe sticking with geopolitics a bit, this was interesting. Over the past few days, we've been hearing that the U.S. Department of Energy came out with a low-confidence assessment of how the COVID-19 pandemic may have originated from a Chinese lab leak. It, it sounds like there's some controversy or difference of opinion surrounding this assessment, but I'm curious as to what the meaning behind low assessment or low confidence assessment is, and how has this all been received worldwide? Yeah, and it's not just the Department of Energy's um, uh, finding that they believe there's a low level of confidence that, this, that uh, COVID emerged from the Wuhan lab. But also the FBI director um, said it's most likely uh, the origin of COVID. Um, so, you know, these are two different components of the U.S.'s intelligence community. Um, but there are others in the intelligence community that still believe that, you know, this was kind of a um, transmission from animal to human, you know, that was more um, natural, we'll say. Um, so the intelligence community is split, but this does you know, um, bring a lot of controversy. Um, China has rejected these claims, and they've even warned Elon Musk, you know, who had Twitter not to um, allow these uh, comments from uh, the FBI director and the Department of Energy to, to spread. Um, so, you know, China is very defensive about this, and they don't um, like it, they want to control the narrative, and you know they don't want to have any responsibility on the government for the spread of COVID-19. So this is something they take very seriously, and and will be pushing back um, very hard on. Um, but it just shows you, you know, how sensitive our relationship is with China, where something that like this, where that we're pieces, not the entire intelligence community says that it was a lab leak and you see a full reaction from China on on this. So it, it is an interesting development. You know, I, I do wonder if we're going to see more, um, you know, intelligence uh, pieces of the intelligence apparatus uh, come out with more findings um, to substantiate the uh, lab leak theory. 
Um, so this this may not be over, and you know we may see um, China continue to push back on it and more and may push back more forcefully than just work. To your point, Shane, I'm sure this is not the last we'll be hearing about this. So thank you for the clarity and certainly something we'll continue to track as well. Coming back stateside a bit, we have been tracking the very tragic events in Ohio, this with respect to the train derailment in East Palestine. So how has the federal government chain been responding? I know we've seen some figures, notable figures from the Biden administration and others visit the site in recent weeks? And could this event result in heightened regulation of the U.S. rail industry? Yeah, really interesting questions there because, you know, there still needs to be some fact-finding. We have a a preliminary report from the NTSB um, about uh, that this was caused by uh, overheated bearings. And you've seen President Biden and Transportation Secretary Buttigieg essentially blame Um, the Trump administration for, you know, um, stalling regulations uh, regarding the rail industry and also uh, blaming the rail industry for pushing back on those uh, regulations. But the fact of the matter is those regulations would not have prevented this um, disaster. And so, you know, I, I think that this is some political fodder going back and forth of trying to blame someone, um, at the same time, you know, you have um, the EPA saying, you know, it's uh, safe to drink water, whereas there are contaminants in East Palestine. So, you know, you have a lot of the people on the ground there not believing uh, the EPA and, um, you know, pushing back. So, you know, I think there's going to be um, some response by the federal government um you know, to clean it up uh, in the coming uh, days and weeks. Um, But I'm not sure that we're going to see new regulations, um, I should say new laws passed um, to, you know, try and prevent this because, you know, uh, as I said, there's kind of discrepancy about what caused it. You may see new regulations from the Biden administration being put forward, um, but that's a little bit longer term as regulations take a while to develop and put into force. We'll certainly see what happens with ongoing investigations, I'm sure, and how this might materialize further in Washington, D.C. with regulations. Though maybe to close out, Shane, we can turn to Capitol Hill a bit, and this is picking back up with our conversation on the debt ceiling, which we were speaking about, I think it was back in January with our colleague Tom McLaughlin from the Chief Investment Office. Though still ongoing, that debate is with in Congress as we move closer towards that early June deadline. Have there been any developments or progress to speak of with respect to negotiations? Yeah, negotiations, you know, haven't um, really, you know, produced any results and nor uh, do we expect them to at this time. You know, I think there are some um, talks among senators um, uh, that are very quiet and that is, you know, on purpose. Because, you know, here we are March 1st and we're, you know, three months away from this being really dealt with. Uh, at, uh, and so this is going to be a slow process. You know, um, what we see on the horizon is is kind of some of the opening salvos that really may um, bring about, you know, more, the more public side of this debate. You know, next week we expect President Biden to release his budget. 
Um, and there'll be hearings in Congress about that budget with different um, uh, heads of departments and agencies. At the same time, Republicans are going to prepare their budget uh, to pass out of the House. So that kind of um, helps set up negotiations and uh, some of the debate. And, you know, I, I, so this is all kind of part of the process. I think one of the things that we're going to be very closely watching is um, tax receipts that come into the federal government in the coming weeks. You know, it is tax season, um, and many of us are preparing our taxes and possibly getting refunds or maybe sending in a check. And generally what happens is in um, April, the government gets um, tens of possibly hundreds of billions of inflows in additional uh, money, so they run a surplus. So the question is, is how much of a surplus do they have is it enough to push beyond that uh, potential June deadline, maybe into July, maybe further? Or does it maybe is it not as well as expected and that June deadline comes into May? I, I at this time think that June deadline built in a little bit of a cushion. So, you know, I don't think the the X date of when the debt ceiling needs to be lift, lifted will be, will come into May. Um, but, you know, it's something we, we need to follow closely. And Congress will be, too, as they kind of um, start working, really, really working on this debt ceiling and how to move forward, uh, because that timing will be key to when they actually do act to lift the debt ceiling and then what is, you know, attached to that uh, effort um, as as Republicans want to do, include some uh, um uh, debt cutting at, at the same time. Hopefully an agreement can be reached sooner rather than later. As you pointed out, Shane, it sounds like we have a, a bit of a cushion, though I'm sure we'll be speaking more about this in the months to come. Though, Shane, thank you very much, as always, for dropping by the podcast, keeping our listeners, our clients informed on a range of topics here in the U.S. and around the world as well. Looking forward to picking back up with our conversation again next week. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be back with you. Looking forward to it. Today, we have been joined by Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. As a reminder to our listeners and our clients, please be sure to make reference to the latest Washington Weekly publication, which can now be located on UBS.com slash Washington Weekly. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.